doing it's really disrespectful by the way what is that supposed to be sn Gwenko, the late spiritual leader who brought the meditation practice of vipassana into modern popularity well you said we couldn't use the original recordings because of copyright you didn't say you could do that though well you didn't say i couldn't do that no i'm not having that all right well why don't you just drop in this episode's guest dr jack aloka as a teaser then yeah all right I had this specific vision in my mind of the Pasana which was terrifying. And it's haunting me to that. Everyone is aware of the film The Matrix. I'm now out of the Matrix. However, there's no resistance. There is no one there to welcome you into an alternative or something to fight for value systems potential alternative models and relationships no at that point i felt that i just got disconnected from the matrix into nothing You're listening to Spirit Levels. It's the podcast that pressure tests the wellness industry. I'm actor filmmaker Frank McGree, and every Tuesday with my partner, journalist Jenny Valentich, we'll immerse ourselves in wellness practices from the pseudo to the sensible, and we'll thrash out the benefits. Frank, hmm. you've been saying for some time now that you want to do the Vipassana retreat, which is 10 days of meditation, no talking no eye contacts, obviously no tech, completely cut off. Mm-hmm. Why? I think because I want to see what the little voice in my head's got. I have to hear that all the fucking time, by the way. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see who's in charge. But you're a really chatty guy. Like whenever we're out, you'll be like ruffling the hair of complete strangers. I mean, I can't see how you'd be stopping yourself from rallying the troops if you see anyone who's suffering, and people do apparently suffer quite a lot yeah but i think um i don't know i think how you perceive someone else's experience could be very different to what they're actually going through like for instance my friend gary went on a vipassana in thailand and it just sounds so not like what someone called gary would do gary from clapton by the sea by the way i met him in london <laughs> one of your mate one of your mob anyway he went and did a vipassana and he fell madly in love with this girl and just created this absolute love affair. And at the end of 10 days when they spoke, <laughs> he went, oh my God. But he created that in his mind. So he, so he just spent 10 days in a in a fantasy. Total he, fantasy. He wasn't even allowed to look at her. So he just projected stuff onto this apparition in the corner of his eye. Yes. Amazing. So who knows? Is what, that what you're going to do then? Is that what you're planning? I'm not planning it. But who knows what each person is actually going through. I don't, don't think that girl knew that she'd fallen in love with Gary from Clapton by the Sea. <laughs> But whenever you go on a long car journey, like you'll just write a whole script in your head. So you're just going to end up with this 10-day script. Yeah, but I think that's... That I'm going to have to proofread. Yeah, you have to proofread it because I can't spell. No, because I think that's a challenge, though, and people do just get lost in imagination, and that's not the point. 
you actually have got to do the hard work, do the meditation and see what comes up. I could go into fancy land for 10 days. It's easy. But yeah, yeah. The whole point is to focus on your, your breath in that really excruciating way where it's just taking you away from your imagination all the time. For a bit of background, so these retreats, they're entirely donation-based. I mean, you don't even have to give anything. They're entirely volunteer-run. They're all over the world. They're usually in beautiful locations, deep in nature. It's a Buddhist meditation practice that originated in India over 2,500 years ago. Yep. Popularised in the 70s and 80s by the late S.N. Gwenka. Oh, do you want that again? No, no, stop, 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 because we can't afford to go there. Okay. Who amazingly was not known for being weird or handsy. Like, he hasn't been me-tooed, even posthumously. He's the first guru that hasn't. And, I mean, a lot of people put off doing Vipassas because, I mean, the logistics are cumbersome. I mean, you need to take time off work. It's not just 10 days. I mean, you've got to kind of prep yourself for it. And I reckon you'd have to decompress. Like, you couldn't go straight back to work. Yeah, it's like a psychedelic trip where you're supposed to integrate what you've learned afterwards. So if you went straight back into the office, straight back into your phone... Yeah. That's all going to get lost, presumably. So, we're going to talk to three people about their very different experiences of Vipassana retreats while we consider whether or not we're going to go. And we're also going to talk a bit at the end about the Financial Times podcast called The Retreat that's really got people talking about the more dangerous side of Vipassana. So, first up is Georgie, and then there's Jane, and then we're going to go really deep with Dr. Jack Aloka, who's a neuroscientist, because who better than a neuroscientist to try and unpack what the fuck just happened to him? Jack calls himself an extremophile, but he says the Pashna is the most extreme thing he's ever done. Jack's the voice you heard at the beginning with the Italian accent, so hold on to that thought. We're going to meet him at the end. I attended a Vipassana retreat about 14 years ago in Wurialik in Victoria in the Yarra Valley. I decided to attend four or five months after I had a really serious motorbike accident where I nearly lost my leg. I spent four months in hospital and I came out with a large traction device on my leg and that was going to be fitted for 12 months. I was... An athlete at the time, I competed in multi-day, multi-sport activities and it just meant the worst change to my life that I could have imagined and I entered into a pretty serious depression. I was in severe pain. I had many, many operations, actually 21 in total and 21 general anaesthetics over the course of two years. So I had to renegotiate and redefine my relationship both with my physical body and I guess my mortality. I was 30 at the time and I think some of those existential questions that come to us later in life came to me a lot earlier and I went down a little bit of a path of awakening or spirituality or you know, in, in investigating what it means to be alive and what it means to come close to death and then to have my body permanently changed from then on. And I guess I entered into the Vipassana knowing that the ask was to sit still for many hours and to sit not just with discomfort but with pain. I had recently come off very, very strong pain medication and had had strong withdrawals and entering into it in a more conscious way felt like a way to actually come up head to head with it. It was a really transformative experience in many ways, learning to be in my body and to accept my body 
in the physical state that it was in, knowing that I couldn't do anything to change it. In saying that, it was so challenging. It was really painful. And I probably was the squirmiest person in the room. I was lucky to have a room on my own because of this device on my leg that was incredibly cumbersome and made me really restless at night. But that potentially added to other layers of aloneness, which really do come up in in the silence of 10 days. I'm also a talker, so not talking for 10 days. It was just so alien to me, just not hearing your own voice in the way that we usually do when we talk every day. I found the teachings, I mean, I think there's a lot of wisdom in them, but I did find them kind of indoctrinating, you know, in this sort of hunger, trance-like state. Those tapes just roll out, just roll out hour after hour. And I did get the sense, like, I feel like I'm being sucked into a cult. <laughs> I, you know, I did have to sort of have these internal battles. But I was also battling my internal state of depression. And it was probably in hindsight too much too soon. But I did manage to get through the 10 days. Overall, I'm really glad I did the experience. I will probably never do another one. <laughs> No reality. <laughs> it's been 14 years. I'm definitely not rushing back. I would recommend doing a fair amount of meditation and silent retreat in stages in the lead up to it. I think we have a tendency in our culture to go from, well, maybe I should speak more for myself, but from nothing to everything really quickly. So I think, you know, if you're going to get the most out of it, the same as fasting, the same as many of these things, like sort of leading up to it can be beneficial. I signed up for a Vipassana retreat when I was 30 and at the time I was kind of um, working like crazy, like I was working like five different jobs or something and I just felt like I needed to just reassess and regroup what I was doing. I've kind of for a while been drawn to these experiences where there is a chance you might get some like great insight into yourself and into the world. The idea of that is so alluring to me that you can just do this one thing and like find out something really important and profound and life-changing I guess as well I like doing things that are like a mental challenge where I kind of see what I'm made of and like realize that I can do difficult things so that later on if I'm in an uncomfortable situation I've got that sense of my own resilience and grit to kind of go it's okay I've done this hard thing before I can do something else difficult so I went to Dharma Aloka in Wurriyalik out near Warburton. The thing that made it kind of easy and difficult was that as an introvert, it's kind of a luxury for me to not have to talk to anyone for a while. And also I can kind of just go into my inner world and entertain myself for really long periods of time and not get bored. But what I realized after a couple of days was that like, I was just going off on these adventures and like I, for a while I thought a lot about Game of Thrones because it was like at the height of Game of Thrones and the finale hadn't come out yet. So I was like going off on all these tangents and theorizing what might happen and I was doing that for ages and then I kind of went, hang on, this actually isn't what you're supposed to be doing. This isn't meditating. This is just me thinking and fantasizing about things. So then I had to keep coming back to just like the body scanning and what we we're actually meant to be doing which is a lot harder than just like entertaining yourself. Um, but the other thing, like as well as kind of having a wild imagination, I have anxiety. So what I realized through just watching my mind for so long is kind of how my anxiety functions. And I sort of realized that it's a, 
kind of misguided self-protective mechanism where I'm always imagining the future and imagining the worst case scenario as a way of like protecting myself or preparing myself for bad things to happen. And I kind of just had this insight that that's actually not helpful and it doesn't prepare me for the worst case scenario. It just kind of like jangles my nervous system even more. And I kept having this, (laughs) this phrase that kept coming to me, which was like, you just keep adding mayo to things. You're always adding extra mayo to everything, which is something my partner says. Just meaning like you're always embellishing everything. The retreat taught me just come back to reality, come back to noticing you're actually just sitting on the floor in a hall. That's it. There's nothing more dramatic going on than that. And then I found out later there's a Buddhist teaching um, called shooting the second arrow, which is basically that idea that the first arrow is the event or the reality and the second arrow is the one you shoot into yourself which is your reaction which just doubles the suffering so it was kind of interesting that it was a buddhist retreat the other thing that was weird was on one of the first couple of days i had this really strange sensation where i suddenly felt like my body was like bathed in this like blue light and i had this like memory drop in i can't explain it because it was kind of like a body memory more than a mental memory and it was this memory of standing on the beach on New Year's Eve holding hands with this boy that I'd had like a very brief thing with like I kissed him a few times one summer or something but he had died a few years after that and I didn't even realize I remembered this moment of standing on the beach holding hands with him and then I realized I was crying and it was a really strange experience because it it didn't come after thinking about something It, it just came from this memory dropping into my body And I went and spoke to one of the teachers, the meditation teachers, because you can go and talk to them each day if you've got any questions or you're struggling. And I said to her, I didn't know whether I was supposed to like go deeper into that and investigate it more and kind of like immerse myself in it or whether I was supposed to like push it aside and, and move on. And she was like, you're not meant to do either. You're meant to just observe it, let it move through you and then you continue on. It's about kind of going away from society and reflecting on who you are and your purpose and what you've got to contribute to the community. I met Dr. Jack Aloka at a meeting of the Australian Psychedelic Society in Melbourne. People were sprawled on beanbags watching some lecture or other. Even among these seasoned trippers with a taste for the weird, Jack's adventures in the farthest flung communities in the world usually involving guns, drugs and catapults, were talked about as being out there. People kept telling me I should interview him, and Jack, often within earshot, was nonchalantly receptive. If you're listening on Spotify, by the way, that's Jack's head that we used as this episode's artwork. So long story short, there's a whole chapter on Jack in my book, Everything Harder Than Everyone Else. But we don't... What? I was just going to give the price and where you can get it, but keep going. I've linked in the show notes. Oh, okay. But we only really focused on one of his hobbies in that, which is him challenging his notions of disgust by eating what many would consider to be inedible. So far, 100 or so insects and animal species have passed through Dr. Jackaloka's digestive tracts, and some of them, I guarantee, would elicit your disapproval. Mm-hmm. But there's so much more we could have talked about for that book. He's a neuroscientist. He's a pharmacologist. He's an AI engineer. He invented Somnivore, which is machine learning software for analysis and... What was that word? For analysis and scoring of sleep data. He's also had many radical excursions as an adventurer. 
And then there's his inward explorations as a psychonaut. He's taken a wider variety of drugs, including research chemicals that probably anyone listening to this has even heard of. And that makes him in demand by tech entrepreneurs and squillionaires as a consultant. Have you ever heard of mastermind groups, Frank? No. <laughs> <laughs> I finally get to speak and the question, and I get no. Keep going, though. Well, they wouldn't let us in, that's why. Right. They're private well, groups of the British. They wouldn't, because all I could say is no. <laughs> They're private groups of people, particularly at the forefront of tech. It's like a super exclusive burning man. And do they all have um, man buns? That's rude. But, uh, yeah. And anyway, look, the people in these groups recruit Jack to do things like facilitate psychedelic experiences or oversee procedures of extreme fasting. Some people keep him on a retainer just to pick his brain when they need to. And one client wanted Jack's help to reconfigure his moral framework, which I found I found really worrying. Concerning. <laughs> that was the head of Google, by the way. Larry, we can't say his last name. <laughs> anyway, he's a guy of extremes, clearly, but the one thing he'd never done was Vipassana, mainly because it was never in one place for long enough. I mean, all those things sound extreme. Yeah. They are extreme. But there's other forms of extreme as well. Yeah. Like, what about raising three kids on your own with the middle child? On your own? Yeah. Okay. What about raising three kids as a single father for 50% of the time <laughs> with a middle child, with a daughter, I won't name her, the middle daughter, that if you say black, she says what? <laughs> right? That's extreme. Do you know what else is extreme? What? Living in a share house in your late 40s with seven people. Okay, that because all three kids have just moved back home and they're boyfriends and girlfriends. So that is, actually, that's that's extreme. Yeah, let's tell him about that. Go do that. <laughs> or what about you go visit your 95-year-old mother, right, and you go outside to feed the cockatoos and you come back inside and she says, hello, who are you? That's fucking hello. extreme. Hello. Hello. Hello, Frank. Hello, Frank. That's extreme. That's really extreme. So Jack actually went off to a Vipassana retreat in the Blue Mountains, and he just planned to sort of do some problem solving, use it as a really intensive problem solving time. But you can actually see for yourself what emerged. I was coming off a very, very intense period of professional evolutions and also a bit tired from years of non-stop traveling so I, I needed a bit of a shock therapy and also the digital detox component of it was very compelling because a lot of what I do needs constant relay with digital stuff and that eventually becomes overbearing and not just for me I guess that's the real pandemic and the world is our reliance on the internet there are other people there and I know you don't make eye contact, but does it feel like a comforting presence that other people are there? Yeah, it feels like a sort of group therapy, or you're like in prison together, or you're like in some kind of barracks, and these are comrades of sorts. But in the fact that you're not talking to them, it's also got that mystique or slight but it's comforting because you're not just completely there stranded and there's other people doing what you are doing so you're not completely alone and it's like is this safe I'm gonna like no because you're kind of like 
I tried to study in a library, a university. You're kind of carried over by the hive kind of mind. Occasionally you'd see the person breaking into tears or losing their shit. And was there a screening process before you yeah. got there? Right. They ask you a lot of questions. They want to make sure that you are healthy because Vipassana is not a therapeutic modality. It is more a training modality. I think it's more like um, a boot camp. Like you wouldn't go joining a boot camp with a broken ankle. You know, yeah. In fact, they really are trying to make sure that you have no ailment whatsoever. At the body level and at the mind level, they don't want to see anything weird. Like a month before, they call you and the person is probing you to try to ensure that you are not a loony in any possible sense. And you passed? Uh, somehow. I, <laughs> I guess I, I managed to... Yeah. And in the actual discourse... They actively try to discourage you. They're like, hey, this is not for everyone. This is going to be weird. People have a very strong response to this. They would feel a lot of pain. And a few people become psychologically destabilized. You know, if you, if you have a history of anything like this, you would want to reconsider. And, and uh, the person even knew I'm a scientist, a neuroscientist that knows meditation. And he still would be like, ah, this is still nothing like you've heard before. This is his own thing. And What did you think might be your path through this? How did you think things would unfurl for you? I was very scared. Because of my never-ending travels, parts of me kind of neglected mobility training. Could never really commit to yoga. So I was sitting on the ground for 10 hours. It's just like, I'm going to mess something up. And it would have been physically unbearable. So let's, let's get down to the crunchy bit then. Yeah, but how did this pan out for you over the days? What went on? What was this mental transformation? The interesting thing is that everybody I spoke to gave me a different account. It's a little bit like a psychedelic set and setting and personal history and maybe even genetics and whatnot really contributes to what's going to happen. For the first few days, it's all about a calibration period where you're just figuring out how not to burst a knee or you know having something horrific happen to you. Then, by day four, they start to police your posture, meaning they say for an hour now you don't move at all, at all. So then there's these hour-long periods where they're literally like walking around and looking at people, and this would happen thrice a day. And uh, then at, at night there's lectures about the belief system of Vipassana. And uh, the meditation is of two types. Either they make you focus on your breath, a specific area between your lips and your nose, or they make you do a body scanning over and over. So there's no visualizations, there's no mantras, there's no, no. And uh, there's Goenka just doing his thing, saying, I don't know, let's start thinking about the upper lip and the nostrils and when then you can move and like focus on the knee or the ankle and then he sings that is the only cultish element i would say the fact that there's this bizarre singing stuff the concepts are very vanilla buddhist there's nothing grossly dogmatic or intrusive 
I've done lots of these things from landmark to all bizarre things. I've kind of infiltrated all of these ecosystems. Vipassa actually is pretty low key. They don't even tell you, tell your friends. There's the rules of how to do the thing, but they don't tell you about how to live your life afterwards. They don't tell you what to do with your loved ones. There's no pamphlet. There's no pamphlet. It's just like, yeah. You know, the world is your oyster kind of thing. I guess when you pay for something, you have an expectation that you're going to get something out of it. So if you lose that, that must be really liberating. Yeah, I think that the unpaid part of the experience has a major role because you just can't quite put this into any pigeonhole. Is this a product? Is this a religion? The governance is interesting. It seems to be like very decentralized in a way. Even the master teacher and all the people, they're all volunteers. So there doesn't seem to be a real economics attached to the thing. You can't quite reverse engineer the agenda, which I think is very powerful and very unique. What was your hero's journey through it? What was your character arc? Right, so at the beginning... Yeah, yeah, the character arc. We want the character arc. (laughs) At the beginning, I was like, "This this is fucked up. Like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I was starting to experience tangible withdrawal symptoms from tech. And they felt just the same as heroin or any other hardcore substance. It it was like I was feeling specific pressure on my chest about checking a phone that wasn't there. So what happens is that you become trapped in your thoughts. The mind rebounds from the... ADHD phenomenology that modern living forces upon us because of the fragmented attention split between a thousand apps and places to be, opportunities and YouTube and texts. And so I think that most of humanity is suffering from a form of induced ADHD. So then the mind seems to rebound exactly the opposite way in a context like Vipassana. I was presented with like the OCD version of me that was only very selectively expressed up to that point. I became psychotically obsessed about things related to the far past or nagging issues the switching board of your mind becomes very hard to operate in those conditions where the one thought you have is the one thought you're going to have for a long time you can't just go on your phone and let that just take you on a journey of news or emails no you you don't really have a way to guide your mind in any direction you just like Ah, I think I mistreated that person five years ago. And then you're like, for four hours, you're just thinking about that. And, and, and then you try to meditate because that's what you're supposed to do. But you start becoming somewhat psychotic in the proper sense of the word. And so meditation becomes your only way out of a certain form of psychosis where your mind just keeps trying to problem solve and be like, ah, oh, this, but ah, maybe I can check. Oh, well, you can't check anything the buffers of your working memory and long-term memory is all you have, which is never the case. You always have access to a way to Google that, Google this, or look at that photo from wherever, like, no, it's all gone. 
and you realize how deeply inadequate you are at that skill set. All of those faculties that were delegated to apps and devices, yeah, it's all coming home. And home is rusty as fuck. I had specific narratives of becoming obsessed about finding some kind of resolution about a backlog of existential unfinished business. I spent on one single problem at least three days of quasi-hysteria. And at times roaming around, because then you have the periods where you can just walk around, right? And it looked like, yeah, psych ward vibes, big time. But the, the interesting thing is that then at the level of attention and problem solving, the cognitive depth is unparalleled. Is something that I could not even achieve with Ritalin or Modafinil or specific nootropics. And uh, every time for me ended up in a breakthrough where after days of I need somebody comes and get me out of this or I'm going to eat my own eyeballs kind of situation, something clicks. And that specific issue is labeled as done. It becomes like a computer game. That quest is complete. And then oh, there's the new quest that just intrudes its way into a vacuous mind that now is just, you know, waiting to be filled with stuff. Was it always problem solving stuff, Jack? Or could it sometimes be a real pleasant memory or thought? Yes. Uh, I see undeniable parallels with the psychedelic experience. It very much feels like a trip that lasts 10 days. So the set and setting of the individual is very likely to affect whether the rabbit holes are more negative or more existential or more mystical. For me, because of the kind of contexts I walked into at Vipassana, it was mostly, I would say, 80, 70 to 80% painful. Yeah, deep existential pain, but extremely productive. You need to get past a certain threshold. So by day three, I had my first breakthrough where my body just dropped. I found a certain type of groove. And uh, then I could focus on opportunities as opposed to problems. I could finally do work that was pertaining to my work, to my vocation and not personal issues. And some of the work I even did in my sleep because every night, I would have the most overwhelming of lucid dreams. People I hadn't seen in forever. And I could stare at the details of their faces with a clarity that was in parallel. People I even thought I forgot from ages ago. And uh, things related to my work. So I had some breakthroughs in terms of what I want to do professionally. And my sleep fixed itself. So how has it integrated into your life? It is somewhat overwhelming. People come out of the Pasana, break up with forever partners or quit their jobs. Or For me, oof. I was let out of a cage and the cage was the nexus of internet stuff and uh, modern tech now, which is not just using a phone. So much of your life is decentralized onto tech that you don't really know what the separation really is between you and the digital abstraction of what's in devices. And uh, I was like, motherfuckers, 
It was like as if somebody kind of slapped me out of hypnosis. I felt so much more sovereign. I had been given again the chance to just be myself and extremely capable in the world without the cravings of internet or other people's models. My mind regained access to an area of my mind that had been unavailable for maybe close to 10 years. In the course of countless trips in very remote regions where I just go in barren Papua New Guinea or desolate areas in South America. And so I would just be fully self-reliant, dislocated from my societies and cultures, good and evil. And it blows my mind even looking back how I could be able to do those things. They've just been completely disconnected and let atrophy in humans. Humans are becoming indexing machines. They don't need to learn anything anymore. They just need to learn where to find. The geniuses, the Einstein-grade people are almost extinct because people are not incentivized to accrue the mental assets. From a certain angle, everyone kind of looks heavily handicapped and uh, domesticated and I would say heavily disempowered. The thing is that I had this specific vision in my mind of a passenger which was terrifying and it's haunting me to date. Everyone is aware of the film The Matrix and there's that specific scene where Neo wakes up in the pod full of artificial amniotic fluid and is surrounded by the other encapsulated humans in the farm. And then it gets sucked out by the system that recognizes that something malfunctioned and it was to be discarded. And then the resistance is there to rescue him and, and show him the, the real world, right? And I saw just that, but different. Like I got unplugged from everything I knew. And I woke up in this environment surrounded by other humans still plugged and I'm now out of the matrix. However, there's no resistance. There is no one there to welcome you into an alternative or something to fight for. Value systems, potential alternative models and relationships. At that point, I felt that I just got disconnected from the matrix into nothing. Not nothing meaning just black and void. No, there is another world, but I don't know how to relate to it. No one else knows what I'm talking about. Well, I'm gonna just infiltrate the Amish or something. Like I, who, who's really gonna like, I'm alone in this. Is that exciting or frightening? It's both. I can see why a lot of other people would have got existentially ravished in a way that they couldn't conceptualize or even integrate like one of those bad trips when you come back and you're just like, something happened. I can't function anymore in this world. This specific narrative described by someone that doesn't have adequate control over language and rhetoric would just sound like, yeah, he lost his mind. He's gone full cuckoo. I am equipped to deal with that. 
for me, that space of being outside the matrix is everything I trained my life to be able to handle. It's so ironic that some of the biggest names in tech will be doing these kind of retreats. Definitely. Like yeah. even Steve Jobs was just, is this kid? They're not going to go anywhere near iPhones and iPads. He fucking knew. So I came out of the experience angry. I was just like, how could I ever let the world take this away from me? I felt in many ways mistreated by modernity. While also, you know, it's a codependent relationship. It also gave me wealth that I could have never dreamt. So it's not like just bad. Clearly, it's good and bad. Do you oh. think there are smaller versions of what, what you've done, the, the personal retreat, that all of us could benefit from doing? Yes, however, I am very unimpressed with what's available. Meditation alone could do it, but who's really good at it? And it's no match to the stimulation that a phone can provide. People now that try to meditate are mostly just trying to stay still and not lose their shit for like half an hour. It's not really meditation. <laughs> to replicate something even remotely similar to Vipassana, most people can't afford that level of disconnection because they have shit to do. They've, they, they, their job requires them to be mostly on call all the time. And then this stuff is expensive. You need to be able to book yourself in a cabin for at least a few days. And then you need to feed yourself in a way that keeps your brain capable of that type of introspection. A lot of people can't even do that because they're constantly inflamed. The microbiome is throwing them in a way of hyper arousal and constant uh, psychosomatic disruption. Uh, a lot of people are addicted. So it's hard to really have that level of cognitive sovereignty when you are craving a cigarette every two hours. Or when caffeine is dimming from your system and all of a sudden you feel retarded. There's reasons why monks have the environments they have. They're isolated, they don't need to work. Food and resources are provided by others. And at most what the average Joe can do is some form of housekeeping to not become toxically hijacked by technology. We're going to have PAs soon, artificial intelligent PAs that we're going to be talking to and just use our brains less and less. We'll just tell this 100%. artificial intelligence PA to go and do everything for us. Eventually you're going to be asking, hey, what should I do today to maximize my experience? I don't trust my own feelings. Or is partner A or partner B more conducive to... You know me better than I do. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> what I mean, right? And that's a slippery slope that is... It's going to be very hard to fight this system because the benefits will be significant. So then it will be like shooting yourself in the foot not to use it. It's like performance enhancing drugs, right? If all the other athletes are using them, then there's not a level playing field for you, so you need to use them too. Precisely. So unless these things are somewhat banned or heavily controlled, top-down, which also can be done because then there's nations also competing for industrial output, economic innovation, and, and so the country that has unvetted control of these things will always outmatch competitors. So then it's, it's, multi, it's basically like a one-way road. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm pretty sure that 
we have lived and are living the best time in history. If you ask me. It must be such a cognitive dissonance for you because you've really got a whole role in that world. Not only with your own company, but you know, you're know you invited out to conferences to talk to people who would be heavily involved in this world too. And yet you have this history of going out to the remotest kind of regions possible to unplug. Where do you see this going for you personally? Would you think you would just um, try and go completely off grid? Now I'm trying to find a compromise, basically, where I can be in the system, but also rediscover a way to be out of the system and being able to travel between these different matrices. I mean, for me, I feel extremely privileged. By most standards, my life is pretty out there. I would deploy different cognitive and experiential environments. And so I will have seasons where I'm more plugged in and, and seasons where I am out. And then trying to find ways to keep this switching system functional and healthy. I can't allow myself to return living as a drone. That was a trip, man. That was, that was fascinating. I mean, I guess we're very, very different. Georgie, she went there because of a crisis. Um, she's also an extrovert. And then you had completely the opposite, which is Jane, who's an introvert, and she's going there because she was a real seeker. I, I loved, I mean, Jack's fascinating. The whole tech, AI and unplugging. I mean, you and I have arguments about AI. and We have arguments because I'm like fiddling around editing all day and then you come home after working in the great outdoors and start telling me in forensic detail about the latest book about AI you've been reading and I'm like I haven't got fucking time to be hearing this well, I know, which is exactly the problem Jack's talking about yeah I, true I'm a sleeper I'm, a, I'm, I'm in a, a rat race but AI is it's just fascinating what's coming down the tube mm-hmm. but I still think the most extreme thing you can do is Raise three children on your own. Yep, still going with the on your own narrative. Okay, yep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even the mum. <laughs> We've been listening to this podcast called The Retreat, which was put out by the Financial Times. And it looks at the darker side of Vipassana and sort of intensive meditation in particular. It's quite notable that all the case studies in it are all young women. I think they're all around the 2021, 20, 22 mark. Yep. And what it doesn't acknowledge is that they were all women who'd sort of dropped out of society to an extent. Like that Some of them dropped out of university, literally. They all seem to be suffering from anxiety. They all seem to have a bit of a shaky sense of self. And then they got into Vipassana. Yeah, and, and suffered everything ranging from dissociation to, well, two of them committed suicide. But Jenny, have you have you experienced anything like this in your 20s? Well, I was saying that in my early 20s when I lived in share houses with other women, and maybe like attracts like, but we kind of all had at different times psychotic breaks and dissociation. And I don't say that lightly. Like, I, I would say some of us had severe mental health issues and some of us, me, were taking a lot of drugs. So I definitely, for instance, had amphetamine psychosis, which sounds a lot like some of the experiences we heard in the podcast the retreats like complete yeah. inability to feel my own body I was getting auditory hallucinations very scary and you don't really talk to anyone about it because you don't know what the fuck's going on so it sounded very familiar to me 
that age is super vulnerable. And if you're going to do things on top of that, like travel on your own and go to long retreats or take drugs, then you are even more vulnerable to having a kind of psychotic break. When I did travel early on and I had, I mean, you wouldn't have, not breakdowns, but you get pretty freaked out. Destabilized. Yeah, in Asian countries and, you know, you might smoke a bit of pot and, and whatnot. And you, you actually are slightly insane. Well, you're completely cut off from all your normal routines and way of life. Any kind of vulnerability you have there, it's going to find it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think of the axe man, Alex Buxton, who we interviewed for our facilitated breath repatterning episode. He wound up going into a catatonic state in the jungle in Thailand when he was on a yoga retreat. And it took him ages to recover. So what are we going to say? Yoga's bad? Absolutely. Yeah. No. It is. It's terrible. (laughs) It's terrible for you. You know, on the one hand, I get what this podcast is saying. It's saying there was some neglect from the Vipassana retreats. But I also think it's an advanced practice. It's not a bucket list bungee jump. For people who are more sure of their mental health, I mean, I think these retreats could be really good for detaching from tech or, you know, just finding oneself. All right, all right. So I want to know, having heard all that, mm. if you would still want to do this Vipassana retreat you've been talking about forever. Okay, well, I want to know if you would. All right, well, let's answer on the count of four. Okay. One, One two, two, three, four. four. No. Yes. No, I definitely want to do it at some point in my life. I want the one, the kind of boot camp sort of challenge, but I do want to see what comes up. You just want to fucking see what you're made of. Everyone you, wants to you, see what they're made yeah, of. Yeah, but you have that running in your blood where you're very competitive and you would want to do this so yeah, but, that you don't crack at all. Yeah, but competitive with yourself as well, not just other people. Like, I'll beat everyone at the, obviously, the passion I'm at, but <laughs> I want to also beat myself. <laughs> I want to win against myself. And there will be many selves. And people call me a narcissist. <laughs> Well, I'm a definite no, because I've read such mixed things on things like Reddit and Quora. There are a lot of people saying they had incredibly profound experiences, but there are equally tons of people saying ever since they did it, they feel stuck in a loop, they can't sleep. Vipassana is is like the great unknown, and the great unknown is your own mind. And even though I feel like the Financial Times podcast was pretty biased and just telling one side of a story, um, what happened to some of those people... They became convinced that they'd done something unimaginably evil. Right. And they just could never atone for it. Um, and I was trying to imagine something like that. And I was thinking, you know, what, what kind of loop might you get stuck in? And I was thinking how a behavior just like eating meat, which a lot of us mm. do. And we sort of, know, we're a bit ethically uncomfortable with it, but we just push that down as we push down many things for the sake of just getting by in life. You know, if that if that was the thought that got locked in your head, that ethically mm. that was just something horrendous, there's nothing you can do about it, all those animals that you've eaten. Imagining all those lost souls of all the animals you've eaten. Yeah. Especially the cute little pigs. Yeah, so, I mean, who knows what gets stuck in your head. But I can just see that something could, and it takes on this dimension that you'd never, ever would normally give it credence for. So it's a big no from me. So the worst case scenario for you is you become a vegan. <laughs> You've been listening to Spirit Levels, a weekly show with Jenny Valentish and Frank McGree. Subscribe to hear our show every Tuesday and we'd love to see you on Instagram. We're Spirit Levels Podcast. And TikTok, where we're Spirit Levels. See you next week.